0: A couple of weeks ago, I was at the men's retreat and uh, was sharing with those guys what I would was planning to do the next Sunday and uh, was a little bit regretful as I shared with them that they weren't going to be there because I knew that what uh, God had put on my heart was significant and I wanted them to hear it. <laughs> so God uh, gave me something that prevented me from coming that next Sunday and so here we are and they get to hear it. All in his perfect timing. I, was, I told Mark I was worried for the last two years about what's going to happen the morning I wake up and I can't go because something happened and, well, now I know. It goes on just fine. <laughs> uh, thankful for him and so many others. So let's pray before we begin our time together. God, as we enter, enter uh, into your word and this time of looking at scripture together, uh, we confess as a church family, that we do not possess the wisdom, we do not have the understanding, and we are not able to be changed outside of the work of your Spirit in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And so we come before you humbly requesting that you do your work in us that we are unable to do for ourselves for your good purposes in our life and in this world, we submit ourselves to you and to the truth of your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I am looking forward to this. We've got a great passage to look at together this morning. You remember where we last left off a couple of weeks ago. Paul had given us his resume, right? Um, an impressive list of things that he had either inherited or accomplished on his own that were at least at one point in time the means by which he qualified himself to be accepted in the eyes of God. But then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there was this great reversal where Paul says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ." But this morning, he goes even further. If you will, turn to chapter Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I am willing to lose all that I worked for in order to gain the one thing that I really need. (laughs) He says that he's suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. Now, The first thing that I notice when I look at this passage is that what Paul describes here is some sort of a a sacrifice that he made that was not without pain. It involves suffering. Because Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. There's some kind of painful separation with something that he has to let go of, something that he has to release in order to gain Christ. And that something is all-inclusive. In other words, it's not just one thing. He says, it's all things. And these things point back to his resume of righteousness that he had acquired and that he went through in the previous verses. His accomplishments, his inheritance, his obedience, his social status, his religious tradition. Paul is confessing. That these things that he so passionately pursued and, and depended on actually distracted him from Christ instead of leading him to Christ. And here's why. Don't miss this. When we believe there are things that we can do that merit God's favor, what we are saying in essence is I don't need someone else to do for me what I Can do for myself. I mean, Paul. Paul, of all people, should have recognized the Messiah. He was a tremendous biblical scholar from the finest Old Testament seminary, if there would have been such a thing. He knew the scripture and the traditions better than most, including the repeated prophecy of the coming Savior. So, how in the world? Did he miss it? Here's how. He didn't recognize the Messiah because he didn't need a Savior. You see, you don't need Jesus if you've decided that what you can do on your own will work just fine. And that's what Paul is saying. My list of accomplishments led me away from Christ, not to him. I didn't see him. Because I didn't need him. But in loving mercy, God interrupted Paul's life, didn't he? Literally stood before him on the road to Damascus and presented him with a choice. You can either continue down this path, choosing to live apart from me, or you can surrender to me and live life as I intended. One path leads to destruction. The other leads to eternal life that was the defi- decision that confronted Paul and in the same way we are confronted in God's mercy when he interrupts our life with that same decision like Paul we must abandon everything in order to gain one thing it is an act of complete surrender so sacrificing what we cling to for security in order to gain the only thing that will ultimately Save us. As I thought about this, here's kind of the, the mental picture that, that I have in mind of what Paul is describing here. You see, he, he's dangling over a cliff, hanging on to a rope of righteousness that he's depending on to save his life. It's a rope that he made with his own hands. And so he has confidence that it will save him. That is, until he starts to examine its integrity over time. It's not as flawless as he as he thought it was. In fact, as time goes on, more and more of those threads begin to break. Increasingly, it can't hold his weight because he finally understands his rope is rotten. That sin has caused an irreversible decay. So does he hang on to his rotten rope, knowing that it will ultimately fail? Or does he grab one that is being offered to him by God? One that is anchored around the cross of Christ. He has to let go of one in order to grab the other. So Paul, knowing that his rope is rotten, reaches for the righteousness that is anchored To the cross. And his total dependence is now on that rope alone. He's holding on, as verse 9 says, to a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What was his previous hope based on? Himself, right? What he inherited. What he accomplished. His religious tradition. His self-righteousness. What he could do. What he could see. But the righteousness which comes from God, as we see, is different. It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not see. It's based on faith. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And that reward, we need to understand, is a relationship. That's the reward. A relationship between us and God. A relationship that brings new life. And what's interesting about this, as you look into this relationship that God desires for us to have with Him, is that it is always dependent upon righteousness. You'll remember. From our Abraham study, the Scripture told us how Abraham had faith in God and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. And Abraham was a friend of God, wasn't he? That righteousness from God is what opened the door to a relationship with God. It's important to understand, however, that that righteousness is a legal term, not a moral term. This is important. So listen closely. What this tells us is that our relationship to God is a judgment that He makes based not on our moral choice of right and wrong, but on His legal demand for justice. Now, I want us to think about this, because if you remember back to verse 6, in fact, turn there, if you will, to verse 6, where Paul says, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But yet, if we look at this point in Paul's life, he did not have a relationship with God, did he? He he had achieved a righteousness that came from the law in his mind, but that righteousness that he had done by his own accomplishments did not lead to a relationship. Why is that? Because Paul misused the law. And here's why. The the law is a moral code. It is the instruction regarding right and wrong. Following this code, even to perfection, does not produce righteousness. The verdict of righteousness must be determined by a just judge. The law was never given. As a means for righteousness. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, and I encourage you to do this, what you will find is that the Israelites were God's people based upon faith before the law was ever given. Now, you don't need to turn there, but write down Exodus 14, 31. And go look at it, but let me read it to you this morning. It says, And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians... The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. You see, it was at this point that the people of Israel trusted in God. And as you go on in Exodus, you'll see that the law is not presented until chapter 19, sometime after what we just read in Exodus 14. That's because the law was given to a people who were already redeemed. And what was true of the Israelites is equally true for us. Following the law does not produce righteousness. Being a good person who tries to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing does not lead us to a a relationship with God. We, like the Israelites, like Paul, are declared righteous by faith. Our innocence is not something we achieve, it's something we receive as a gift of God's grace. But there's a problem, isn't there? God cannot turn a blind eye to the existence of sin that exists in every one of us. As a just judge, this verdict of innocence is only possible if God does something to remove our guilt and condemnation because of sin. We are saved by faith, the Scripture tells us, in view of a sacrifice that is necessary for the forgiveness of this sin. Now, this is what I want you to look at. So turn to Romans chapter 3. Verse 21, Paul will explain so, so well what we just said over the last couple of minutes. Chapter 3, verse 21, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, listen to what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, look, apart from the law. Remember, there is no righteousness achieved in following the law. That's what this just said. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law is not the means by which we obtain righteousness, but it does point to the righteousness we need. What is that? Look at what it says. The righteousness of God, there it is, through faith. In who? Jesus Christ, for all who believe. See, everything points to Jesus. Here it goes on and says, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation or a substitution by His blood to be received there again, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ was made effective for those who had put their faith in God, past, present, and future. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who, there it is again, third time, has faith. In who? Third time. Jesus Christ, <laughs> so let me clarify what we have said up to this point. righteousness is the requirement for a relationship with God. It is a a legal decision that must be applied by a just judge, but here's the problem: sin prevents from this judgment of innocence in our lives, and not only that, the law is incapable of changing our guilt and condemnation. But here's the good news. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Our faith in His sacrifice allows a just God to grant a verdict of innocence to those who trust that what He did on the cross accomplished what they could not do ever even possibly on their own. We abandon. We surrender. We let go of our own rotten rope and we grab the one anchored to the cross. And God says, I credit His righteousness to your life for the purpose of a relationship with me, which is why I created you. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's just the beginning. Turn back to Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 10 together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul goes on to say, "...that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death." in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's a great quote that Elizabeth Elliot once said. She said, One does not surrender a life in a lifetime. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. I believe Paul agrees, because his language in these two verses that we just looked at talk about a process. He says that we may know him. It is a growing knowledge and relationship. Like any relationship, it's dynamic and and changing. He says, being conformed to his death. Again, a process, something that takes place over time. Remember, Paul is writing this letter some 30 years after his conversion. And yet, he admits he's still being conformed. Growing in his faith, deepening in his walk with Christ. And what is true for the Apostle Paul is equally true for you and I. And I think this idea of being conformed to his death is a powerful message for us. Normally when we think of death, we think of it as static, not dynamic, right? You're dead or you're not dead. But what Paul describes here is something different, Paul says that death is progressive. We are conformed to his death. That's something that happens over time. I believe what Paul describes here is the ongoing process of dying to self and living for Christ. Because let me ask you something. You see, Paul told us that his self-righteousness led him away from Christ and not to him. He didn't accept the Messiah because he wasn't looking for a Savior. He didn't need one. But what about after you kneel at the cross? Does that desire for independence go away? It doesn't, does it? Is it just me or do you struggle as well with this desire to to try to do the right things and avoid the wrong things in order to, to please God? Maybe I'm the only one. But it's the same trap. Any work apart from Christ will lead us away from Him and not to Him. Now, our salvation is secure. But how we know Him can be hindered by choosing to live apart from Him. Doug McAlpine and I had a conversation over the last couple of weeks about This verse, He told me that these were some of the most significant verses for him in his life. And and so we had a chance to dialogue about this a little bit. And I asked him if it was okay if I shared some of that conversation with you this morning. And so let me just tell you kind of what he said. And I bet you can relate to it. He said this. He said, this verse speaks of my spiritual life. As I started walking with God, I saw many things that a Christian should do. Everything from reading my Bible to serving to sharing my faith. I also saw things that I shouldn't do, like lying or, or being lazy or lust. Being a self-reliant, independent man, I wanted to please God. So I started working to be righteous, thinking if I did all the right things and avoided all the wrong things, God would be pleased with my effort. So I worked hard to them, and I learned that some I could control and do, and some I couldn't even come close on. <laughs> when I, What I started doing was building my my own version of the law, he says. I would take the things that I could do and include them. And then I would leave out the things that I struggled with. Now, it was never something that I wrote down, Doug said, or, or even verbalized in any way. But I could see all my focus was on certain things to do or not to do. And I ignored the other things I struggled with, like pride and selfishness. He said, I ended up with my own righteousness. My version of the law that was one I could accomplish, something I could do. Felt righteous because of what I did on my own, but listen to this. He says, But I wasn't experiencing the relationship that I know He intended. I really appreciate Doug's honesty because I believe it reflects most of our hearts in this room if we were honest with ourselves in the same way. Self righteousness never leads to the divine relationship that God intends. Paul describes something different and as Doug and I talked we we're learning to live in this reality of what Paul describes he says i want to know jesus and the power of his resurrection <laughs> so this is great because we just celebrated that last sunday didn't we the resurrection and so let me ask you when when you think about the resurrection what does that mean well hopefully from what we talked about last week we would know that the resurrection means the power of 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 life to conquer death it's its victory over sin it describes our our life in Christ and his resurrection power when we choose not to live in our own strength but by the spirit and as the scripture says the spirit is what we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we may be raised to live in newness of life with him. All of us know from our own experience that once we put our faith and trust in Christ. That that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin anymore. But here's the difference. Unlike before, sin is no longer your master. When you surrender your life to Christ, he becomes your master. You were dead to sin as your old master, and you are alive to God as your new master. But as Elizabeth Elliot said, one does not surrender their life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. And I would add to that, moment by moment, the Christian life is a life of repeated surrender. Dying to self being raised into newness of life with him. That's the power of the resurrection in the life of every believer. It's what gives us victory over sin and creates life where once there was death. That's resurrection power. And not just once, but over and over again. It's the reality that we experience not by our own effort but by our humble submission so that he who began a good work in us can perfect it until the day of Christ. That's what it means to to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Dying to self, being raised to live in newness with him again. And now if, if this transformation takes place where it's, less of me and more of of Him, where it's no longer I who live but He who lives in me, let me ask you, how is the world going to respond to that when they see in you the person and work of Jesus Christ? Probably no different than they responded to Him. Would you agree? And that's why Paul goes on to say that we experience the fellowship of His Sufferings. Being conformed means that we move from simply a beneficiary to a participant. What was true in Christ's life becomes evident in our own. And this is where a lot of us want to opt out, isn't it? We like this idea of abiding in Christ and this resurrection power. But when it comes to this idea of suffering, not so much. But let me remind you. Paul tells the Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He tells the Corinthians, For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Once again, Jesus changes everything. Even suffering looks different. Is it easy? No. No. But our suffering for Christ does not end in defeat. It actually leads us into a deeper knowledge of Him, a closer walk. It's part of that sacred mystery of intimacy with Christ, where we know Him through the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, where there's no joy any greater than being found in Him, being known by the Creator of the universe, being loved by the Savior of the world. But it's an ongoing process that is not completed this side of heaven. We know that because of what Paul says as he continues. Look at verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead i press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus he says i haven't arrived i like you am still in process you see as a pharisee this wasn't his confession was it as one who lived independent from god his goal was to maintain his good standing which he had achieved apart from Christ. He had a right. He was blameless, remember? And his efforts were directed toward that which was necessary to stay on top of things, to maintain his innocence. But as a Christian, it looks different, doesn't it? Now, his confession says, I'm not perfect. I'm still surrendering every day. I am dependent upon the grace of God for all life and godliness. (laughs) And he is faithful, even when I am not. His focus was not on what he needed to do to be blameless, but on what God, who had begun the good work in him, was doing to perfect him. His goal was to be humble, so that God could do in him what he admitted that he could not do for himself. Was he passive? No. In fact, the language of these verses is very active. He was working out his salvation with fear and trembling, as we had discussed earlier in this letter. He says, I press on because I belong to Jesus. Again, Jesus changes everything, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, I don't know about you, but... This verse has always been a comfort to me because I've applied it to the mistakes that I've made in the past. Forgetting the ways that I'd failed and reaching forward to the new opportunity to do what was right the next time. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily heresy. I think there's some truth to that. But as I looked at this passage, I'm convinced that that's not the main goal that Paul had in mind here. Because let me ask you, what has Paul spent most of his time Focusing on up to this point. His failures or his accomplishments? It's his accomplishments, isn't it? And it makes sense if you think about it. Oftentimes, it's our failures which lead us to Christ. It's our accomplishments that lead us away from him. I think what we are to leave behind are those things that we find sufficiency in apart from Christ. Christ. Those things that we often lead us that often lead us to our greatest failures when they become our focus it's the one who says that i don 't struggle with lust that typically falls into adultery It's the rich man who doesn't see his own spiritual poverty It's the brilliant scientist who explains how there could be no God. It is those who have lost themselves in the routine of religious tradition. Who are left wanting in their relationship with God. Because think about it. What did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. So don't look behind at either your successes or your failures. Look ahead to what awaits you at the finish line. Where this ongoing process of being conformed is once and for all complete. Where our momentary sufferings are traded in for an eternal weight of glory. A place where sin does not only not reign, it doesn't even exist. Press on toward that goal. Reach for Christ who has so wondrously reached for you. Experience his resurrection power through surrender not accomplishment, dying to self and being raised into newness of life with Him. That's the power that exists for those who believe. His righteousness has made possible a relationship of eternal value. Press on so that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And remember, Jesus changes everything I mean everything. Run with endurance the race set before you. Fixing your eyes on who? Jesus. The author and perfecter of what? Our faith. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for the truth of this passage. (laughs) The honesty of Paul. Uh, who we probably oftentimes set uh, so far away from us that we can't relate to him as a fellow human being. But through a passage like this, we see that he is a man just like us, who admits that he has not arrived, but he presses on. I pray that that is an encouragement for each and every person in this room. I pray that we would hold fast to the hope that we have in you, a righteousness that is not our own, that is experienced not because of what we accomplish, but because of what we surrender. May we suffer the loss of all things in order to gain you, the only thing we need for all life and godliness. And Father, help us as followers of Jesus Christ to not do that just once, but moment by moment, each and every day, surrender ourselves to you So that we can experience that promise of the resurrection power. To die to self. And be raised into newness of life in you. So that it is no longer I who live, but you, Father, who live in us. Strengthen us as our life is conformed and we share in the fellowship of your sufferings. May they not be the distraction, but actually the pathway into deeper intimacy with you. Where we become... Not just beneficiaries, but actual partakers of what it means to have life in you. May we fix our eyes on you, Jesus. The finish line, our prize, and the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you. And when we read things like this, we know you love us so very much. We pray this in your name. Amen.